Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 264. This is the first program after Shavuos, which was a week ago, but we're still basking in the shadows. Maybe that's not the right word. We're basking in the echo and the after effect of Matan Teda, 3,331 years ago. And we still are integrating and, and internalizing the effects and the power of what happened at Sinai, which is a perpetual event every year, renewed. We're also going into this week as the beginning of the week of Parshas Baalescha. So let's begin with that topic. So, Matan Teda. Matan Teda, of course, is the most momentous event in all of history. Not just that we received the Teda, which of course in itself is uh, historical. Never did it happen before, never will it happen again. It says in Chesidus, Lo There won't be another Sinai, another Matan Teda. Even Mashiach coming, there won't be a new Matan Teda. There'll be new Teda, there'll be new revelations, but everything was given at Har Sinai. But in addition to that, as Chesidus explains, and I discussed two weeks ago in the episode pre-Shvuas, that the power of Matan Teda was that gave empowered the human race the Jewish people and the human race, to transform the material world into a home and divine garden. To take a gchefze of the mundane world and turn it into spirituality. Joining and integrating the two, which is the ultimate purpose of creation, why we are here, is to take this world, the physical material world, and all its uh, implications, and transform it into uh, the channel for the divine expression. When Mashiach comes, that will be realized in the fullest sense of the word, when it will be revealed. Meanwhile, all the work we do continues to affect the world and refine the world, and yet it's like a munach bekufsa, the language used in Chassidus, it's the energy that it releases, all our actions are like contained inside of a chest. As the Rebbe once said, not just a chest, but the chest, we also have the key to open up the chest. So all the energies are stored. Everything we do, every good deed a person does has an impact. Mitzvah zu, yichud zev, from the mitzvah, as he says in Tanya, is mitzchil elam vod, it's forever. The fact that we don't see it or feel it is, number one, is we are material beings, so we see things on an external, superficial level. Number two, because it is concealed beneath the surface. Think of just as an example, when a volcano erupts, the energies that have been built up and pent up don't happen overnight. They've been built up. Though that we don't see it, it's still there. We only see once it erupts. So in a good sense, the opposite, meaning in a good sense, the same idea. When you do things, it can have an impact even though you may not see the immediate impact. We don't see it with our naked eyes. Sometimes we could see it. When we talk about seeing the signs for the Geula in our times, whether it's the advance of the advent of technology, whether it's the political freedoms, the fact that the Jewish people are free, literally, to serve and be as Jewish as they wish without any gzedas, without any decrees, thank God. Unprecedented in history, and many, many other factors that we can see in the world, a more refined world, though there's still work to be done, um, and especially the work, as the Rebbe says, to reveal, open our eyes and reveal that which is already there, because the world has been refined over these thousands of years. That's all result of Matan Teda, the power of Sinai. So the power that that gives us each year in a renewed way and an elevated way affects us in a very direct way, which is it is essentially the force that empowers us. 
to do all the work we're doing today and tomorrow and yesterday and every day of our lives, the power to take a material existence, our personal lives, and turn it into something of higher purpose. But not just directed, we actually transform existence. It's one thing to do something for the, for, as a means to something else. Another is to transform the means, it itself becomes part of the end. That's why when we say Geula, is the word Geula, redemption, is um, the word Geula with an Aleph, we're taking existence as it is, the existence in exile, in a displaced spiritual state, and we're redeeming that. So think of somebody who's been in prison. When they get freed from prison, that same person is being freed from prison. It's not just a new reality and a new person. It's that person is being redeemed. So we're redeeming and transforming the world itself, our personal world, our collective world, each one of us in our own particular way. And all that has been given the power by Matan Tera, as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya chapter 36, that the, a taste already of the redemption, a world where a world will be aligned with its purpose. Think of a machine that's functioning fluidly and smoothly and seamlessly aligned with what the engineer, in this case the cosmic engineer, created it for. That all was a taste of that was given at Matan Teda. So that was like the beginning of the process. And all the work we've done since then has all been with that power. And when finally that will erupt, the goodness and the kindness and that refinement and the spiritual energy will erupt, the material world will all be transformed, it all began the Matan process. So that's what we have to say thanks for, and not just thanks, but also acknowledge the strength that we get from uh, Sinai, from Matan Now, following Matan we read Pashas Nase, that was uh, last Shabbos, I mean, yesterday I should say, that was the Shabbos afterwards, and this week we're reading Baalescha. So Nase I've talked about in previous years, I'm not going to address it now because it really belongs to last week's uh, theme. We'll talk about Baaleischa. Baaleischa is one of those uh, themes that the Rebbe was very, I wouldn't say fond of, but extremely continuously used the expression right in the beginning of the Pasha, Baaleischa Sanedis, that uh, when the Kohen Godel, the high priest, lit the Meneda, he didn't just light it, it was supposed to be lit in a way that the Shalheves Elam that the flame should rise on its own. Which meant, when you, light a, when you light a flame, you always see it takes a split second for it to catch. So the, the Kohen God could have technically just moved to the next one, and if it burned out or didn't catch properly, you can always go back and light it. says the Teda, no. The word is Baaleischa Sanedis, not Baaleischa. Not when you will kindle, kindle, kindle the flames, but when you will elevate them, because the goal is to raise the flames. So of course the obvious question is, what difference does it make? So it burns out, you could always go back and light it. Says the Rebbe, this is a fundamental principle in all of life. All of life's purpose is for us to illuminate our environment, for us to be walking menorahs, walking candelabras. Education, inspiration, relationships, communication, all of that is a form of igniting, illuminating. So when we affect and influence those around us, whether it's a teacher educating a child, a student, whether it's a parent educating and shaping a child, whether we do that through our lifetimes, adult lives, in our relationships and in our interactions, you can do it in two ways. You could do it in a way that you ignite someone. You light, you kindle them. So good, you've ignited them. The question, however, is what happens in time? Will it dissipate? Will they need to come back to you for that inspiration? Or have you done a second way is you've empowered them with a methodology that they now can rise on their own. So in education, you can teach someone data, facts, information, knowledge, and brilliant stuff. 
But has, is the student able to generate information on their own? If there's a question, do they have to come back to their teacher or they can find, they've given them the resources and the methods to be able to find the answer? And that's the difference. One is inspiring, one is illuminating. The other is empowering and actually causing a person to himidu talmidim himidu, not just teach many students, make them stand on their own, that wherever they are, they have been transformed. So in a sense, Shalavas Elam is the ultimate um, application of Matan Teda. What's the application? The application of taking a Teda that was given from heaven and transforming the world, that the world becomes a Shalavas Elam That existence itself, material existence itself, cries out and reveals and exposes and generates divine insight and transcendence. That's a far greater transformation than when some outside force is imposing itself, even if it's a good force. So it's the empowerment which is key to everything. Healthy communication, healthy relationships, healthy education, inspiration is that you empower the other person to actually rise on their own. That lesson is a tremendous lesson in individual growth, in individual empowerment, and above all, for us to be able to be standing on our own feet. Obviously, with the strength we receive from those that came before us, our teachers, our parents, our educators, everyone that inspired us. But now we've been, it's been internalized and it's become part of who we are. You are actually, it's like a wick that's actually burning on its own. So there we have a lesson, which of course can be applied in so many different ways of how we educate our children, how we communicate with each other, even how you look at yourself. What is your commitment, your Jewish commitment, your spiritual commitment, your commitment to the good values and deeds that you are involved in? Is it something that someone else expects of you, someone else demands of you, or is it really coming from love, coming from a deep place within you that you're expressing yourself, you're owning it? That's a whole different way of experiencing something when you own it. And that really should be the objective. If a person's not in a place like that, so you have to do something about it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do something until you own it, but you want to make it your own in the sense that it becomes your passion, your commitment, and not because someone's watching or someone's demanding or someone's expecting or someone taught it to you, and you're just following the rituals or the habits or the tradition that was taught to you. As I believe I've shared the Torah from the Baal Shem Tov when he says, when the says in Shemineser, we say, Elikeinu, Elikei Avesenu, Elikei Avram Yitzchak V'yakov, so Elikeinu, our God, Elikei Avesenu, the God of our fathers, Elikei Avram Yitzchak the God of Avram Yitzchak Yankov. So the Balsam Tavaz, the chronological order is the other way around. First there came the Ovis. So it should have first said Elikei Avram Yitzchak V'yankov, then Elikei Avesenu, our parents, our grandparents. And then it should say Elikei Nu, says the Balsam Tav. In the beginning of education, you teach children, the parents teach the children. And you teach them what you know to the best of your ability. But the goal is that when a person turns into an adult, it should first be Elekeinu. It's my God. I'm not just serving the God of my parents, what my parents taught me. I'm serving a God that I have learned to embrace. And then you say, that God is the same God that my parents had and the same as, my, as the, of Avram Yitzhak V'yankiv. So it's a lesson in internalization, personalizing it to the point where it becomes yours. As I said, the lessons are far-reaching, and everybody can apply that even further, and I hope this was helpful, at least to get the ball rolling, so to speak. With that, let us go to a few 
questions. Firstly, let me do some cross-referencing. As you know, as I announced, this is episode 264. If this is the first time you're watching or listening, um, this is uh, we're going over six years already. And thank God it's only grown, both in listenership and the questions that keep coming in. So, number one, all the archives are now available at a new website called chassidahsupply.com where you can get all the 265 previous episodes in the YouTube version on laptops and desktops. You can also have it time-stamped. You look at each episode and you can actually go, just link, click on the link that takes you straight to the topic when it was discussed. You don't have to listen to the entire thing. You can only listen to the, what, what interests you. You can easily search on the site for topics that you may be interested in. And they're all based on questions that come in generated by you. By you, my dear brothers and sisters, by my dear friends. And what are the questions? The questions you can post there anonymously in a forum, completely confidential, completely anonymous, because there's no way for us to trace it, which is our preference. If you want us to communicate with you, or you want to respond, a response, please add your email. So you can there post the same thing, Chassidus applied, ask, you'll see, you can find where to post the questions. And uh, there you'll find, as I said, all the archives, and also other resources, valuable resources, all around My Life Chassidus Applied continuously growing resources that we're continually adding to. So every program, of course, these topics have been discussed, either different angles or different issues. Not all have been discussed. There's always new ones. So I want to just cross-reference this topic of post-shvuas and ba'aleischa, what it means in our personal lives, how it empowers us as we go into these next months and the next parts of our lives in episode 69, 119, 165, and 214. Okay, here's a question that has been addressed in the past, but being that there's an interesting project that I've, that I've been made aware of, so I'd like to share you about it, and that's about the Hanochis. Hanochis is a word used, which actually means, Hanochis means to place, or to commit, to commit to paper, the talks and the memoriam and the discourses that the Rebbe delivered. Now, Hanochis were also delivered by all the Rabbeim. There are Hanochis all the way from the time of the Alta Rebbe. Hanochis meant what the Chassidim, and great chassidim wrote down as they heard the words that were said by the rabbeim. Now, sometimes the rabbeim themselves wrote what they said, but the rebbe's case, for instance, mostly he did not write. And other rebbes wrote more than, they, more than others wrote of what they had said. So in the case of the rebbe, the rebbe's most of his delivery of his talks are hanochas. So the question is, how and who produced the hanochas and transcripts of the rebbe's talks? So I did discuss this in episodes 102, 105 and 106, because I had the merit to be one of the few chizrim and manichim that remembered almost verbatim the Rebbe's words on Shabbos and Yontif when there were no tapes and no notes taken. And then maniach also write them down and publish them. Many of them the Rebbe edited, many the Rebbe did not edit. So I discussed it in those episodes, and I'm not going to go through all the details, but I will share with you that uh, a group of bochrim, of students, this year, in preparation for Gimel Tamas, which is 25 years from the, from the Gimel Tamas, from the Rebbe's passing 25 years ago, have created a project called Hanochis, and they're actually giving out booklets each week. So the first one was an interview with myself, with yours truly. And they have a, they've told me that they're posting it on the website. I'm, I hope it's, it's there. If it's not there, please send us an email. I'll be happy to send you a link to those to that, to those kefzim, to those booklets. So it's a full interview with myself in, in issue number one, and then they've done each issue. They're interviewing different manichim and chesedim through the years, 
And uh, they say that's posted at www.vadhatmimim.org. That's V-A-A-D-H-A-T-M-I-M-I-M.org. If it's not posted yet and you want to have access to these uh, booklets, please email us, give us your email, and we'll be happy to send you links to those, um, to those uh, book publications. And their goal, of course, is to inspire and encourage students to listen to Fabrengans of the Rebbe, just as we did back then, and write down what they're hearing. Because when you write it down, you talk about a flame that rises on its own, when you write it and you internalize it to the point that you can repeat it, not just like a, um, a tape recorder, but you've internalized it, you've digested it, you've absorbed it, and then you present it, that is the ultimate expression of flame rising on its own, which is, of course, the whole objective. So I, of course, was glad to participate in the interview and participate in also sharing about this and encouraging anyone out there to be involved in these type of projects because it's an excellent way of actually transforming yourself. Because when you know everyone has their ideas, their thoughts, and so on, you want to really transform your mind. And I can speak from personal experiences. I would not be the person I am today had I not done this, which was to listen absorb, internalize, and then write it down. Because then you are shown that you are expressing it from within you. And when you do that, you transform your mind, the way of thinking. You align it to the Taylor way of thinking, to the Rebbe's way of thinking. And it becomes something that changes who you are, how you think, how you process, how you analyze, how you um, evaluate every situation in life. So I can't have enough words to encourage being involved in things like this because they actually do change who you are and will make you grow in ways that you can't even imagine. So that's about Anochis. Let us now go to a next question. Completely unrelated, even though everything is, of course, related, but here's the question is about past lifetimes. What does Tate and Kabbalah say about reincarnation and communication with past lives? I am new to Kabbalah and Tate. This year I've studied very diligently through fasting and meditation. I found a voice guiding me. I began to question inwardly who I am, who is the soul, what is my divine mission. I was given the sense of looking deeper into the birthmarks my body has, and I have a distinct mark on my stomach that reminded me of a bullet wound, so I decided to see if anyone was shot the months before my birth. It was revealed to me very easily when I went looking. Ironically, the person was shot by accident while making a movie based on the concept of reincarnation. According to the Jewish calendar, it was the 9th of Nisan 5753 when he passed. In my research, I came to find this was also the day that other events in history happened. I was born 7th of Av 5753. This would be 117 days from when that shooting took place. I would like to know, if these dates have any significance, because I know Kabbalah deal, deals deeply with numerology. Also, are there any steps I can take to make a healthy communication to my previous family? Should I be worried about harming the lives of others by coming back from the grave? Or should I quietly respect the grace God has given me to be here to practice more mitzvot? In short, what does Torah Kabbalah have to say on reincarnation and communication with your past lifetimes? Is this normal? Or should I be looking at this as a divine sign of something I'm supposed to bring forth in the world? I would like to say thank you so much, Rab Simon. When I found Meaningful Life, I had a superb sense of deja vu, as if I had met him before. Please communicate an answer to me, and I'm also welcome to this question being read publicly 
on the program. I tune in every episode, so I'm sure I will not miss it. Extreme gratitude to everyone who makes these lessons possible. Okay. This was read without any censorship, as you can tell, because I would like to, as I said, I want to honor people's voices. Um, so clearly many different type of people listen to this program. This is one question which I'm sure is also on many other people's minds. First, let me refer you cross-reference to episode 11. In episode 11, I discussed the topic of reincarnation. So this is complementing that. So let's begin with this. Just for the record, there are actual opinions that don't hold from reincarnation, the Torah opinions. But the consensus is, especially those that have studied Kabbalah, that there's the concept of Gilgal. That's the name for the Hebrew name for reincarnation. Tedus HaGilgal. Actually, in the Zayr Pasha Mishpatim talks about it at length. The Elam Mishpatim, these are their laws, so-called the, the rules, the guidelines of Gilgulim. The Rebbe actually quoted that Zayar in the first Shabbos when he was sitting Shiva, when the Rebbe, after the Rebbe passed away, Chov Beishvat, Tov Of course, we have the Shar Hal Gilgulim and the Sefer Hal Gilgulim from the Arizal. And we have Gilgulim HaNasham, this is part of Jewish doctrine. So number one is reincarnation is a reality. And as I explained back then, as episode 11, it's essentially built on a logical system. A soul comes down to this world for a purpose. I described earlier the purpose of transforming your life into a spiritual divine home. And um, each of us has a particular mission. What happens if a soul doesn't finish its mission? Or, God forbid, even worse, does some damage. So there's a certain built-in immunity system, for lack of a better expression, that the soul will return to finish the job. And that's the essence of Gilgul. There's obviously more to it than that, but it's a basic principle. So the concept exists, which would mean that most souls, there are concepts of a neshama chadosha, a new soul. We know this about the Alter Rebbe, we know it about other individuals. But the con- most souls are souls that were here before. That means they lived in this world. So of course there's a connection, association between you or I, with the souls that came before us, or the lives that were here before us in this ongoing journey of a soul continuing its mission. And if we were to know that connection, you'd probably find similarities. But here's the but, the big but. Big but is, we were not told which souls we evolved or reincarnated from. If it was important for us to know, we would have been told. There are instances in history that Rizal told some of his students, and other cases where you have people who did know. So those are told by people who are with, with authority. And with authority, I say, people who are refined, divine people, not sensationalism, not con artists, not commercialism, and so on. But in general, most people do not know. And that means we don't need to know. And we don't need to pursue it. Our lives is, we have to live our lives, meaning go in a straight and simple path with God. What you know, you know. And whatever you need to know to be able to serve your purpose will be told to you. It's very intriguing, the exotica, to know who was here before, where was I here before. But it's not something that the Jewish traditional approach pursues. And even if there are tzaddikim who did know, who do know, and did know, what soul was the one that you first, which body did you occupy in a previous lifetime, they don't always tell you. As I said, if it's important for us to know, we will be told. So while it's true, it doesn't mean something we have to pursue because it's not necessary for our work. And Judaism and Teda and Kabbalah is all based on being grounded and responsible person. Not just to seek out sensational exotic information. 
It's all about how will you become a better person? How will you make the corner of your world a better place? And what you need to know, and that will be giving you the resources, the knowledge, the information will be given to you. Should a person have a premonition that seems to connect to something that happened, I'm not going to say it's not true. The question is, should we pursue it? Do we need to know? So in your case, you mentioned this story. It's interesting. I would not, deny, I would not reject the possibility that there was such a connection. That's why we know even when we give names to children, we're careful who, they, who you're named after and what happened in the past and so on. There are considerations. But again, that doesn't mean we always know exactly who that, who, where our, what kind of life we lived before we were here. All we need to know is how are you going to fulfill your mission? How are you going to finish the job that was not finished prior to your coming here? Or the other reasons a person may reincarnate. Now this is, I know, being simplistic to some extent because it's a complicated subject, but I'm trying to address the question here, not give a full comprehensive overview and exhaustive presentation on reincarnation. I did that to some extent in that previous episode 11, and I hope this complements some of it and answers the question that was uh, asked. So no, we don't make efforts to try to connect the previous lives and previous lifetimes. We don't even pursue finding out who they were because it's not relevant to us unless we're being, if God wants us to know, he'll send us a message to let us know. As far as speculating, listen, if you feel a connection to a particular person that lived before and you feel that inspires you and motivates you to become a better person, to do an extra mitzvah, become a more devout and pious human being, by all means, no one's going to deny that. But again, we're talking about definitive and going to, to research it or study it or find someone who can tell you. In this case, most will say, those that know don't say, and those that say don't know. Okay, next question. Should being a mashichist, saying yechi, be relevant when choosing a shidduch? As I said, I take all questions. Not all questions I necessarily would prefer. This question is really... I prefer not to have to address it, but I will address it because it's a reality that people deal with, and you'll see in a moment why I prefer not to, not because I dismiss people's positions and opinions, but because I think we can all be greater people, and when we are greater people, this question would automatically dissolve. So here's the question. Why do people care so much if the person is a meshachist, says Yechi, when looking into Shaduchim? I feel like Israelis take the anti and Mishachist much more powerful, much more personal than Americans. But how important is it when looking for a shidduch in America? Okay. So firstly, let me refer you to episode 46, where I spoke about the concept in general, not necessarily regard to shidduchim. For those that don't know what I'm talking about, what is Mishachist, what is Yechi, let me say this. Um, there's... The reason as I am hesitating is because I don't want to get embroiled in politics. Unfortunately, some of these ideas have become political. Because in Teda, Teda says, Ani mamin. I believe in the coming of Mashiach and I wait every day. Not just that I wait every day, but I wait that he should come any day. And other expressions we say six or seven different Times we pray for Mashiach in Shemineser alone. It's part and parcel of Yiddishkeit, in all opinions. So where there are two opinions about Mashiachism, some believe, God forbid, that there is no Mashiach. There's no such opinion. I mean, there are people that may not have belief, or they don't know they have belief, or they they may have also questions about Torah in general about 
Debeshte. But that's not what we're discussing here. So when you say the word someone's a Meshachist, I mean, if you talk Teda language, it's Teda language. So every person's supposed to believe Mashiach's coming. And not just believe, but actively await, as the Rambam says. And it says strong terms for someone who doesn't. Now, I'm not trying to be coy. Obviously, I understand that there is the discussion about the Rebbe being Mashiach. And after Gimel Tammuz, the Meshachistin are people, some people have coined, those that hold that the Rebbe's Mashiach is coming back and they actively live with it. Others say, everybody holds that. Some say it, some don't say it. I'm not going to go into this. It's not really relevant to this question. So I'm not, I, I'm not denying the, the basis of this question. So therefore, some are asking the question, they're going on a date, and you find out one person is a very active person who talks a, a revealed way and says, the Rebbe is Mashiach, and the Rebbe is going to return as Mashiach, or he's already Mashiach, he's revealed or hidden, and so on, all the different opinions. Should I not date such a person, or should I date such a person? So here's my approach to it. Where is it saying the Tehra that that's where you begin? You look at all the Rebbe, talk about the Rebbe, look at the Rebbe's sources, what does he say about a Shidduch? Shidduch, you're looking for a person who's a Yiddish Shemayim, keeps Tehra mitzvahs, is, is a kind person, person with Midas Tevis. Often the Rebbe says it goes hand in hand with Yiddish Shemayim. That's what you need, that's the foundation of a, of a trusting relationship. Obviously we all need compatibility in the context of physical attraction, emotional connection, intellectual compatibility, and so on. Obviously, you want someone that shares values, that the type of children you're going to bring into this world, what kind of home you're going to have. But whether the question whether a person is, says not should that be a factor? So some will say, isn't that indica- indicative of a person's faith? Not necessarily. There may be different opinions on this matter, and both can have the strongest faith. So I'm not sure how I can weigh in on this. I would look at it case by case. If a person has the credentials of Yerushalayim and the basic values. So people may not technically may have different ways of doing things. So I would not make this a deal breaker. Even if a person is an adamant believer, an adamant sayer of Yechi, and I'm not getting into whether that's right or wrong, I don't see this should be the issue. You can find the greatest person, should be your spouse, and you figure it out. Just like there are other things that some people are extremely dedicated to and committed to. Why some people have made this a deal-breaker and made this leikuva, that I cannot explain. I'm not one of those people. And that's, I'm being asked the question, so I'm sharing what I know. Just like I would say, if someone said, they, they say chitas with uh, two hours every day. Another person doesn't. Would I say that should be a reason not to date? There are different ways of doing things. And we have to be open-minded in that sense. If you meet someone that doesn't have the fundamental values that you respect and trust, you have to also ask yourself, what, are the, what, what, what values does that person have that you don't have, or the other way around? Because I find sometimes people tell me about the values of someone, and I say, you know something, you're talking about something which is secondary. They're far more fundamental values, real Yiddish Shemaim issues, foundation of a house. So sometimes people get caught up in details and forget about the Iker, the, 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 in Tofel, and forget about the Iker. Tofel means a secondary thing. It may be important. But there's a ikka. The ikka is the foundation of a marriage, is the trust of two people who are both God-fearing and want to fulfill what the Ebershter wants. If it's chassidim, the Rebbe's chassidim wants what the Rebbe wants. And there are different ways of doing that. If you meet somebody and you see that, even if two people do say yechi, and you see completely incompatible values, and you don't feel you can really build a home with that person, that needs to be looked at. So that's why I always conclude in these type of conversations, you must talk to someone 
privately, one-on-one, share with them exactly your concerns. But do not rule out people simply because of their certain customs or lack of customs that you feel are so important. You have to broaden your horizons and you have to look at the big picture. As a matter of fact, anyone that gets caught up with some specific detail, that alone may be a person for the other person not wanting to marry. You're marrying me because of this detail, and if I don't do it exactly the way you'd say, or I do it a little differently, that's going to break apart a marriage. Marriage is much more, much more broad and comprehensive than that. So that's my response, and of course I've been welcomed. I'm sure I'll receive comments both directions on this. It's one of those hot potato topics. So we welcome them all, and you can submit them, as I said, at chassidahsupply.com. Questions, comments, rebuttals, agreements, disagreements, everything is welcome. Okay, since we're talking about Shaduchim already, and of course coming from Matan Teirah, Zman Matan Teirah, Yem Chasanose, Zem Matan Teirah. Matan Teirah is compared to Yem Chasanose, the day of our marriage, marriage between heaven and earth, between Hashem and the Eden. We stood under the chupa, Har Kegigis. The mountain was like a chupa canopy. And, uh, and many lessons and many, many halachas even are derived from Matan Teirah regarding marriage. So since we're talking about marriage, and the macrocosm, there's also marriage on the microcosm. There's another few questions on this topic. Engagement period. So here the question is, how much time should a chosna and kala be in contact with each other during their engagement? So two different questions came in on this topic that I've bunched together. And here's an opportunity to tell you that all questions will be addressed. Some of them are a few months behind simply because there's such a backlog but your questions will be addressed in time, sometimes quicker than others, depending on what other questions have come in, what the topic is, sometimes the timeliness to the period in time of the year we're in. So please do not uh, be perturbed. Some people write to me and say, when will my question be answered? It will be addressed. It's all documented, all saved. So here's the question. What is the right amount of contact the Chazgal should have during the engagement? I've heard people mentioning seeing and speaking one week each. Is this something that must be kept exact to the day or can be flexible? I'm not even sure what it means one week each. Maybe one time a week. I'm not sure. Anyway, number two, another person writes, what should the correct approach t- be taken when the mashpia of the chosun or kala feels that there should be no or minimal contact between chosun and kala during the engagement and the mashpia of the other feels it is important they meet at least once a week? What should be the right medium as this often causes friction with a lack of communication between chasen and kala? And no real solution as the chasen and kala are not in contact with others, with the others mashpia. Thank you for the program, big fan. Okay, so first let's start with sources. When I say sources, I mean the Rebbe himself. The Rebbe, pretty adamant, you see it in many notes, in a very kind way when I say adamant, I don't mean in a harsh way. Very strong that, firstly, that to minimize as much time between engagement and marriage. That there shouldn't be extra nusayinus and tests and challenges. So to make the marriage as quickly as possible, obviously it can be overnight, but to try to speed it up and definitely was very discouraging, discouraged long engagements between the engagement and the marriage. Obviously there's always, a, there's always extenuating circumstances for different reasons, family, health, and God forbid, or other things like that. We're talking, however, when you have complete control over this. That's number one. Regarding the time of the engagement, the Rebbe actually encouraged many chassayim to leave town where their kala was and go learn. The Rebbe, yikar shebi yikar, it's the most precious time because you're no longer a bachir or, or a girl, a, kala, a girl single, 
and you're preparing for hell, the Holy of Holies, Kedush Kadashim Yem Kippur, which is the day of the Chuppah, the day of the marriage, and a life of sacred life. So the best you prepare for it is not just hanging around, even with each other, but to go learn. And that just creates a much more foundational element that will help the marriage. As far as contact, the Rebbe does write in a few places that minimize it. Again, not to lead to anusoyin, that's not necessary, and also not to lead to frivolous behavior, and kala, have to respect each other. It's not just you're hanging around, you're not just a boyfriend, girlfriend hanging around. Obviously, people want to get to know each other, and they love each other. They're going to get married. So there's a certain being drawn to the other. That's natural. But it doesn't mean we have to always act on it. There'll be a whole life ahead where Chos and Kala will be married and be with each other every day of the rest of their lives in mid-session. So during this sacred time, minimizing. I've never, I've, I've, I'm trying to recall if I saw a note from the Rebbe, I'd have to do more research, or you can help me. If anybody's actually seen a period of time, whether once a week or other time intervals, I don't recall seeing it. But either way, I'm sure that's also case by case. Because obviously there are things you need to be in contact with. Not just to talk, but you're preparing to build a home. There's different hachonas to be made. Obviously, parents and family members should really be taking most of the responsibility. But nevertheless, there are things that the Chos and Kala have to talk about. And, there are, and, and so on. So I think it's case by case. And yes, talking to your mashpia could be tremendously helpful because you get a little objective opinion. Now, there's a disagreement between mashpim. I don't see why those two mashpim can't talk to each other. They probably have a reason. If a person feels that it's important for once a week, there must be a good reason for it. Now, Mashpi may have Ein Deyase and Shavis, may have different opinions on the matter, and may have different viewpoints. That's fine. So you come to some type of uh, compromise or some type of uh, agreement. I don't see why this should become a source of friction. Be key, be key. The main thing is there should be transparent communication. Like you could have a different question that's not in this question. A chasm could say, I want to speak to my kala more often. The kala doesn't want so much because of the Rebbe's directive, or vice versa. So here again, this is part of relationships that people have to look at what the Rebbe wants, what's expected, what's healthy, what's appropriate, and try to find a middle ground. I don't know if there's a formula that I can give you here online that will solve everybody's issues, one size fits all. These are the basic guidelines. Now, specifics, you should talk to, to uh, respective mashbim and try to come to some place of agreement. The main thing is to understand the spirit of it. This is not just a didactic rule a dogmatic law. It's a, there's a spirit to it. It's meant to enhance the relationship, not to minimize it. It's meant to sanctify it. It's meant to appreciate it and not take it for granted. Okay. Next question. Next question is, as a mother of young children, how can I daven properly with the right intentions? Okay. So this is a rather long question. And uh, should I read the whole thing? I'll try to read at least as many parts of it as possible. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, first I'd like to thank you for your Sunday night broadcasts. I look forward to them weekly. You have answered several of my questions over the years, and I'm very grateful. I'm interested in hearing you speak about proper davening. I'm a mother of many Baruch Hashem. I grew up in our system, and I have to admit davening is still a mystery to me. Maybe because I'm female and didn't have the opportunity to learn what the boys do in yeshiva. But I do understand Pirish Hamilis, that's the meaning of the words, and learn the basic classic text taught in our girls' school, system, girls' school system. I daven every day the parts that are required according to halacha for mothers. Most or maybe even all the time my davening is lip service and I feel not worth very much. 
I know that is probably my Yetzirah trying to discourage me from davening altogether, so I don't give up. Is it really possible for a mother of young children to daven with kavana, intention, and meditation? Or is proper davening only for men and bubbies? In so many things, the Rebbe didn't differentiate, differentiate between men and women, chitas, mifzayim, etc. Is davening like a chassid, not for a woman who have, who have child-oriented, not for women who have child-oriented responsibilities? In some ways, I feel certain parts of davening are not so relevant to my daily life as a mother. I have learned many times the point of each tefillah, the reason for the order of the tefillahs, ascending to Shemineser, and then descending back down to practical life. Don't get me wrong, Birchus HaShachar, Kabon I find very relevant. But even during Shemineser, my mind wanders. As a mother, I want space to daven for each of my children, to thank Hashem for each and every one of them, to ask on my behalf, on behalf of my children's success. This is the most important thing to me. So I expect to do that during Shemineser, yet there is no part there, there designated for it. Once I realized I was davening without my children in mind, I designated a paragraph for each child to have in mind while I said it. Then I realized that it might be improper since the Chachamim knew what they were doing when they created this tefillah. So instead I had all my children in mind by Moedim as one big general thank you to Hashem. Now my mind mostly wanders during Shemineser and instead I tried to say my children's kapitlach during Chitas time to daven for each one. The main issue though is time. If I have limited time to daven every morning, how is a mother supposed to get into the right mindset? I don't have time to learn before davening like men do. I'm always on call. And even when I do, even when I do remember to concentrate on some chassidus that I learned, how long is it before I, I'm, needed, I'm needed to help a child dress, eat, solve a problem, etc.? To make it more complicated, mothers at my stage have various constant hormonal changes which affects brain power, focus, and attention, not to mention physical discomforts as well, which makes everything a lot harder. Some mothers wake up before their children to do, do for their children do in order to daven. This isn't practical for mothers like me whose children still need them throughout the night. I also think it's good chinuch for children to see that their mother davens every day. I hear you speak of meditating, emoting, changing one's midst through davening, etc. And not only am I mystified, we never learned this in school on top, or, or top seminaries I went to. I'm wondering if this kind of davening is shayach to all women, meaning appropriate to all women. Maybe not so, we never learned, maybe not so, we never learned it in school. Does this mean there are parts of chassidus that are only for men? I will admit to being a bit jealous, like I'm missing out on something special. How does a mother daven successfully, practically speaking? Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to hearing your answer. If I had to guess, I expect you to say, ask your mashpia. And I have not, and I have, I have, but not in these words. Perhaps other mothers out there have the same question. If you will answer to forget about the whole thing and continue what I'm now doing now as long as my children are my focus, I can accept that. Not so happily, but I will. Perhaps there are svarim in the boys' curriculum that teach how to dive and that I can begin to learn slowly. Now, so at least by the time I'm a bubby, I won't have to start from scratch. Please clue me in. Much thanks. Okay. I did read the entire thing because I felt it very heartfelt and I was very moved by this letter. And I will refer you firstly to episodes 63, 65, and 254. And there are many more about davening in general, but specifically those with women in davening. Firstly, the reason I'm touched so deeply by what you wrote is because I think what you just did here is one of the greatest prayers I've ever read. Yes, it's not the Lashon of Chachamim, it's not the Lashon of David HaMelech. That's a Yilarotz and Imre Fi, which is he asked Hashem that my words should be the words that people should repeat in davening. But these are coming from the heart of a mother. 
And you remember, when you're talking to Hashem, which is davening, it's called Avedisha Belev Zuhit the service of the heart. This is a heartfelt call. It's like davening to learn how to daven. That itself is a great tefillah. So I don't want to, I don't want to seem, seem predictable and say, yes, just continue doing what you're doing. I think the mere fact that you care so much, the mere fact that you're trying in the tefillahs that you are doing, is a gvaldik. It's excellent. I would tell you, even if you didn't daven a word, the fact that you take care of your children, that you care about them, that you're up at night with them, in the morning, serving their needs, as you described, that alone to me is a tefillah. What does Hashem want of you? That's why women are potter from mitzvah seser, shazman, grama. Because they're doing something which is greater than that mitzvah that is time-bound. Or at least as great. Even though tefillah is for needs, and that applies also to women, but the mere fact that women are doing the ikr, which is to bring children into this world, and may mechanach them, educate them, especially in their young years, to daven, yes, to learn, to do mitzvahs, is to me, this is the connection. This is your prayer to God. So I would say to you, not to be so harsh on yourself. You are a very fine person. I think you're being a little too critical of your own self. And start judging and and feeling jealous and feeling that others have learned more. Listen, I went to the yeshiva system of men. Halavai, all men should have the desire that you have to daven. Halavai, they should daven what you're davening in the same type of beautiful way. So I would stop being so harsh on yourself and just try your best. Always, I'm not concerned about you. You will always grow because that's your tone. That's your spirit. That's who you are. I could see it from the way you're writing. So I don't have a black and white piece of advice. I think as things adjust, there will be days that you'll have a little more time. And sometimes it feels a three-minute thing. It's a five-minute thing. It's not about how much you say. It's the echos when your children are asleep or you feel the need for it. I hear a person that is completely coming from the soul and from a heartfelt place, sincere, real, and you're trying to be the best you can be. And I would say that you just keep doing that and find opportunities. You want to learn a little more chassidus. Chassidus is for everyone. Again, time allowing. Sometimes learning with your children how to daven is also a form of davening. When you teach them, whatever it is you're teaching them, you're davening with them. And other ways that you can be creative in, in addressing this. And do not feel guilty if you're tired or exhausted or you're so overwhelmed with the things you have to do in your family because there's one God and there are many ways we serve Hashem. And a woman was given a special achrayis, the greatest achrayis of all, shaping lives. So if I were to hear a woman telling me that she's davening, but her children are being neglected, I would say, take care of your children and daven less. Not even a question. They're not competition. So, again, what you're saying is beautiful. I'm glad I read it all. And I uh, would love to hear comments from others, especially women. I'm not in this name's shoes, so perhaps I don't have the full credibility. But I'd love to hear other opinions on this matter and other thoughts. So those are my thoughts on it. Let's do a few follow-ups, and then we will do the chassidus question and then the essays. So here's some follow-ups. Uh, last week we spoke about Israel, two weeks ago I should say, last episode we spoke about Israel-centric Judaism. Follow-up regarding Israel-centric Judaism. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I was fascinated by the question and your discussion regarding Israel-centric Judaism. What I spoke about there was the question that someone asked, should should the fact that the more Jews today than ever before, than, rather than everywhere in the, else in the world live in Israel, should it adjust the way we are centric more about Israel than about the Jews in the diaspora? And I address that. Here's the follow-up. I have some questions. One, 
The idea of Machdo Eretz Yisrael is fabulous for those stuck outside of Israel. Machdo Eretz Yisrael is the expression that Samach Tzaddik used when the Chosid asked whether he should go to Eretz Yisrael. He said, Machdo, make Eretz Yisrael here. So now, though, now, so this person is writing, it's fabulous for those stuck outside of Israel. Now though, now though, that we can be in Eretz Yisrael physically, shouldn't we be? That's number one. Two, aren't there many more mitzvahs we can fulfill in, in Eretz Yisrael? Also, doesn't the Gemara teach us that kol hador anyone who lives out in, outside of Israel is like compared to someone who's an idol, idol, idol worshiper. Now that we can safely live in Eretz Yisrael, shouldn't we all be making the effort? Another question. Just as with Torah learning, the Iker is lases. the primary thing is to learn in order to act on the learning. Shouldn't our focus on Eretz Yisrael be actualized by visiting or living there? In other words, not just talking about it. After all, there's no comparison between focusing on it from a distance and actually being there, breathing the holy air and living with our fellow Jews there. Finally, with the rise of anti-Semitism throughout the world, is there a time that people should be making contingency plans so that they aren't stuck in Chuslar as the German Jews were in the 1930s? So firstly, I'm glad that you were fascinated by the discussion, but I have to say that most of what you're asking I already addressed. And I addressed that, uh, that this is something that if a person has responsibility in Magda Eretz Yisrael, that they must be outside of it because they're either they had a school or they're, they're in a job or in a position that the community is dependent on them, etc. That's one thing. If a person's complete option makes no difference, then they should consult with their Abonim and Mashpim because every person is in a different situation. Children have to be taken into consideration and so on. But the Etzaminian, of course, there's a mitzvah of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael, living in Eretz Yisrael. I mentioned the Ramban and the Shalah and others. And we all aspire, especially when Mashiach comes, when we all go there. So all these questions about Kol Hadar has been addressed by previous uh, scholars and G'dayli Yisrael, what the Heter is. But remember, we're outside of Yisrael, not always due to our own choice. Well, not at all due to our own choice. So you have to ask the question, why is it the fact that the Ebershter sent us into Golas? Not everybody shlichus is to go back to Yisrael. Now, there are some people who are very, very obsessive and very adamant that everyone must go. I, we have a Rebbe, and I'm taking my cue from the Rebbe, what the Rebbe said to people. At the same time, the Rebbe did send Shluchim there, did send people, and there's a whole community. And as I said, it's a mitzvah to be in Eretz Yisrael, and does have mitzvahs that you can't do elsewhere. But I think it's more of a case-by-case case than making some blanket statement about everybody having to do one thing. So we want to do what the Tater says, what Hashem wants, and what's appropriate for our particular shlichus in this world. Okay. As far as contingency plans, firstly, we don't think negatively. Thank God we live in a Malchus Shulchesed. We live in a world that's not Germany of the 30s. I know some people say it could become, but that's not the way the Rebbe looked at things, and that's not the way we're trained to think. We have to do Magda Yisrael, prepare the world for the Gula, and the Gula will come, and we'll all return to Yisrael altogether. Okay. Next follow-up. Chassidus be'iyun. In the last episode, we also spoke about learning chassidus in depth. So here's a follow-up. What's the purpose of the Maimorim that calls chassidus haskola? Isn't that the part of Kabbalah, Zayar, etc.? Isn't chassidus aveda? Thank you very much for your avedas hakedish, for the tzibur, and being makar of the gu'ula. For your holy work for the public, and bringing the gu'ula closer. No, Haskalah does not necessarily mean Kabbalah and Zayr. Haskalah and Aveda are two expressions used by the Rabbeim that there are things that the focus is more on understanding a profound idea in Chassidus. 
Aveda, the focus being applying it to your personal service, whether it's in davening or in zichuch Avedis, birur hamidus, meaning refining yourself, or other ways of application. Every Maimach Siddhis is meant to have both. There's no Maimach Siddhis that does not have Askola and no Aveda. There's sometimes much more Askola where you don't see the Aveda immediately spelled out. But as I've talked many times, and the whole basis of this program, every word of Siddhis, even the deepest Askola of Lifniat Tzimtzum, is meant to be applied in Aveda Sashem. It's meant to be something we daven with. And the Rabbeim are very adamant about that as well. That Askola without Aveda can be, they use very strong terms. Aveda without Askola is more acceptable. Because Aveda means bringing it into personalizing it, actualizing it, applying it, and above all, working. Aveda means to work on it. So no, Kabbalistic ideas may be part of, they could be part of Askola. But Askola can be an idea in Chassidus, talk about Edein Sof, Lifniat Simtsum. The Kabbalah doesn't actually talk about it, and it could be a very Askola Dikamaymur, or set of Maymur. There was the concept of a masculine and an Avid. The Friedrich Rebbe has an expression, there's a maskel gate of an kop, and an avid gate of the fist. An avid walks on his feet, he's grounded, and a maskel is walking on his head. In a way, like saying, I don't say mind games, but uh, you get the idea. And the goal was always to have a combination of both. They were great masculine mechsidis, and the goal that they should bring it into Aved. An avidim that should also have a scholar element. Learning chsidis is da'as alakei avicho. Knowing and understanding is part of the Aved as well. Refining your mind through knowing and understanding and breaking your head and understanding chassidus. Okay, next question, follow-up. Tshuva for a sociopath. That goes back to episode 261. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I was listening to episode 261 and you were asked a question about a sociopath doing tshuva. With all due respect, I aggressively disagree with your response and think that it's a bit harmful. When a person is actually a sociopath or a psychopath or even a kleptomaniac, there's something physically wrong with his brain. It's not just an inclination or an urge toward a bad behavior. His physical brain is literally damaged. I have included a link to a picture of a brain scan of someone who is a sociopath compared to a healthy brain. You can see the difference. So in my opinion to say that although he has an urge to act in a wrong manner, it's literally not in his control. He doesn't have the part of his brain that tells him not to act like this. To make that argument about someone with a mental health issue is playing into the stereotypes. In effect, is the same as saying to someone with depression, just get over it and act happy. Your argument that since Tater says that this behavior is wrong and forbidden, he must be able to control himself. Because Tater won't command something that someone has no control over. This argument is inherently flawed. By the same logic, some who had his arms amputated should have to put on film because Taylor won't command something that he can't do. This example brings out my point perfectly. Mental illness is not just an emotional disorder. When someone is really suffering from a mental illness, there's a part of his brain that has been amputated. So I feel like your answer is a bit misguided. A better answer might be that it's his responsibility to recognize that something is wrong and to get therapy so that he can heal. I hope this doesn't convey a wrong message. I by no means am trying to attack you personally. I just don't agree with the message you were saying. Okay. Well, thank you for your words and uh, aggressively disagree. Okay, fine. Um, well, let me put it this way. If you go back to what I've said, and I actually went back because I wanted to hear how others heard what I said, not just what I thought I said, um, you'll see I actually qualify with many more nuances than you um, actually uh, documented here. 
I began exactly with that point, saying that if a sociopath and a psychopath, according to the diagnosis in the DSM and the current psychiatry, is something that's an actual disorder, how could the Torah expect them to not be harm other people? So the first point I want to make is this. This is not definitive. Just because they say that is that's the case, that doesn't mean that it's the final say. If indeed doctors and professionals say this person will harm other people and they have no control over it, then I would agree with you Then it's like an amputee. Then of course, then, but, but then the question is, what do you do then? Do you let that person loose? Then they're a criminal. If that person is guaranteed to harm other people because they have no choice, then they or others should lock them up. If indeed what you're saying. I was suggesting that because the Torah and God created a human being, to just write off somebody as being a sociopath or psychopath and they have no control, just like an amputated person has no arms, can't put on film, is uh, somewhat uh, rushing to conclusions and not really doing service to the dignity of a human being. Again, if doctors claim that's the case, then that person is literally like someone who cannot control themselves from doing harm. But I would like to believe that there are many people who may have been diagnosed as sociopaths or even psychopaths that do have somewhat control. And I agree with you. Part of that control is let them be responsible to to get therapy and get help to do something about that. That's also fine. Because even if they have an inclination, or more than that, you're saying not just inclination that they can't control themselves, they could control themselves to go get help. But why don't you say they can't? maybe they don't control themselves to get help because they don't think they need help. Because we'll all acknowledge if they, don't need, if they think they don't need help, then someone has to take control. And unfortunately, it's not something we want to do, to take control over another person's life. So that's my response. So firstly, just to sum up, I would not come to any conclusive things. Again, if therapists and doctors and so on conclude with something of that nature, then there's certain circumstances. Then the data itself says, okay, this person is like, it would be like saying someone who's literally mentally disturbed is behaving in a way they have no control over, then you have to take different type of measures. Okay, I think that responds to that. I will, because of time limits, I'm not going to do the anti-Semitism one, which I already began. I'll continue that next week. I will go to the Chassidus question of this week. And that is, it explains in Hecholtzu, Hecholtzu is a Maimur Tafresh Nuntes, the Tafresh Nuntes, would be uh, 1899, uh, eight, uh, 1899, yeah. Um, the Rebbe Rashab delivered a, uh, a long maimer of Hemshech, Simchas Teir and Parshaneach, called the Cholzu. So referring to Cholzu Sif 17, which means section 17, chapter 17, that the reason that it is taking so long to rectify our sins for the destruction of the second Beis Hamidosh, means the length of this exile that we're in, that's almost 2,000 years long, is because it was destroyed as a result of the sin of baseless hatred. How can this be proven? Since there is a well-known concept of Yeridus Haderis, of the descent of the generations, this means that the reason it is taking so long to rectify our sins for the second base Amigdash is a necessary result of baseless hatred, rather, result, rather a result of our low level, like we see with the 288 sparks that we must uplift. It took the Yidin a short period to uplift 202 of them. But the last 86 is taking very long. That's the question. So first of all, the Hemshech Chicholz, is not a Chiddush from the Hemshech, it's the Gemara in Yuma Davtes that says, Avesenu, Sheizgalo Aveinu, meaning that they did a sin that was revealed 
So the kitsam was also their kets. The end of their gullus is, is obvious. And those that did sins that were that the Leinah's gullus were not revealed, meaning concealed, their kets drags on. And the Mepharsim, everybody explains, because it was sinas chinam. Well, actually, the Gemara says it. It was due to baseless hatred. The Rebbe has Nasich in the early years. He explains, because baseless hatred is a concealed sin, because you could show a nice face, but you really have hatred. So it's not the Cholzo alone. The question that you're asking, firstly, about Yeridus Adedus, and secondly, from the from Tere'er Vayeshev that says, how is it that in 210 years they refined 202 sparks at a Vrav of the 288 sparks, divine sparks, Rapach, Nitzutzis, that fell through the shattered containers of Tayu, Merachefes, the word Rapach Mes, and it takes us thousands of years to refine only 86. She explains because those were general sparks, and those were also sparks elevated by the souls that were very powerful souls. So now that the sparks are far more detailed and far more the souls are also more not as strong, as weak as you put it, that's why it's taking that long. So it's not a contradiction. Firstly, as I said, it's not just a cholzu, it's a gemara. So the, if they ask the question the other way around, the teira eir and the chassidus can't contradict the gemara. The answer is the following, that both are correct. Baseless hatred was the foundation of why the, 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 temple, the second base of Midrash was destroyed. Gemara says, and the Cholzok elaborates, because of baseless hatred, that is a very powerful effect because it affects the human beings in a very deep way. It's not just an Aveda that you do to God. It's between people. And how could Hashem rest among people when there's sinas chinam? When we'll have avis chinam, as the Rebbe explains, baseless love, that will repair it. That's why it takes long. What's the contradiction to say at the same time the souls are also weaker souls? doesn't preclude the other one. The weaker souls also mean, additionally, because we're not so strong souls, it takes longer to um, refine ourselves and refine the world. So both reasons can be legitimate. You could even say because of the weaker souls, it becomes harder to repair quickly the sinas chinam that then was done. So I don't see the contradiction between the two. We also know there's the concept of bi'ita and achishenu. So the Pasuk in Yeshaya and the Gemara says, Be'ita means Mashiach will come in his time. Achishana means he'll come before his time, faster. So the Gemara says, how is that possible? So one says, Zohu, if they merit, it will be faster. If they don't merit, it will be in its time. So it's going to come for sure. The Rebbe brings many times, Kolo Kola Kitsin, we did already tshuva. So when, the, when, the, when Leo answers in the Gemara to the one who asked, why is Mashiach, when will Mashiach come? He says, in when you listen to my voice. And the Rebbe, Friedrich Rebbe asks, if that's the case, why did Mashiach answer you? He says, because we already listened to the voice. And it's still not here, so you have to say there's an additional element of spreading the wellsprings of Mashiach. The wellsprings of Chassidus, which is Tadus of Mashiach, to prepare the world. So there could be more than one reason for any particular situation. And that's how I would answer the question. The bottom line is that each of us has the power to talk, refine ourselves and refine our attitude and through baseless love to redeem, correct the baseless hatred. We also know what the Gemara says. That every generation where the base Amidish is not built, it's as of a generation that destroyed it. The fact that we don't, have not rebuilt it means that we are part of the problem and we have to correct that sinas chim that continues to drag on. Unfortunately, we see it's not an easy one to correct. 
So when you combine that with the iridis aderis, or the fact that the souls are weaker, it becomes more complicated. But we've been also promised that we're already at the end of the process, and that the gula is right at the, without the threshold, and just open our eyes and finish the last drops, and we will have the gula here, and the unity necessary, barchino avinu kolono kechot, to have the base of Midrash Okay, let's do now the essays. So we always, the custom is to conclude with the three essays. So we have three essays, one in Hebrew and two in English. The Hebrew one is Hanesina la'acher kekeli l'shine atzmi. Giving to another is a container, is a channel to a core, a fundamental change. Michal Tornheim, age 17, Betari lit in Israel. It's in the 12th grade, uh, Michal Tornheim. She's in the 12th grade of Tichon Beis Chana Yerushalayim, the seminary in Yerushalayim. So this essay, as I said, is in Hebrew and talks exactly about that, how giving is the key to all transformation. It compares it to other approaches in psychology of where you don't have that focus on the giving element. Everything's about me, 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 fixing myself. And by but that attitude actually makes the problem more complicated. The approach of Chassidus is, um, she uses Adam Eitzah that a human being is compared to a tree in the field. A tree in a field has the element of being, growing and giving and producing seeds and fruit. And that becomes the key to um, repair of the world. Then goes through the different, the conflict involved, the, 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 the promise, the destination, and how a person's giving attitudes. Ultimately, when you're giving, you actually change your midas, you change your personality, you change your um, character, and that is the key to all transformation. And it concludes with practical exercises in all ways, in thought, speech, and action. A very powerful and beautiful essay. It's one of the top essays, so I commend you for that. Essay number two, that we're going to do now is called I'm Not a Doormat, The Quality of Self-Confidence by Sarala Ben Shimon, age 30, Montreal, Canada, teacher at Beis Rivka Academy. Okay, this essay is exactly, again, as the name implies, many people today suffer from a lack of self-confidence. Statistics show that seven out of every ten girls believe they are not good enough or do not, uh, do not measure up in some way. Over the course of the century, many students have shown the, shown the importance and the need for self-confidence. There's no question on the significance of self-confidence, is how incredibly significant it is to the emotional health and well-being of both children and adults. Self-confidence enhances one's ability to accomplish his or her goals. In Hasidic terminology, the words used to describe this concept is hakaris milas atzmis. Atzmi. Recognizing your own qualities. Recognizing one's own qualities. In this essay, we will, God willing, delve deeper, deeper into this very idea and explain it in a way which can be applied to every person. What is self-confidence? How important is self-confidence? How does one utilize self-confidence? How do I incorporate self-confidence in my life? And again, very well annotated, another excellent essay. And finally, essay number three, Back and Forth, by Hannah Lazar, age 20, Montreal, Canada, a student at Beis Chaim Mushka Seminary in Montreal. A, a dark show, shadow, she writes, may be clouding one's day. The shadow cast by guilt of one's past. One is jammed in place because of past memories or bad choices. And this toys with one's mind as the past rears its ugly head, repeating old losses, nagging guilt, and regrets. 
It's easy to get stuck in the darkness of bad memories. Scraping off that psychological gum takes work and shift of mindset. Yet through delving into the authentic and eternal works of Hasidic name, Hasidus, namely Tanya, Hayyem Yem, letters from the Rebbe, and excerpts from Sichas, one can find life-changing solutions and messages that will uplift one from the negative, regretful mindset and aid in dealing with it. And goes on to actually dealing with self-worth and self-esteem. Psychological chewing gum is another title. Thoughts, fighting back, shifting one's mindset. How does one shift and control their mindset? Sharing the burden, look back to look forth. In other words, it's all about looking ahead. The pause method, a pillar of salt, meaning the wife of light who looked back and became frozen in salt because of that. Looking forward, and finally, a strategy. Another excellent essay, which I believe everyone can benefit from. These essays are all posted on chassidusapplied.com, our new website for these programs. And you can read them as they're posted also by subscribing to our weekly newsletter. We send out these essays as they are posted. So with that, we conclude this week's episode of My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 264. As always, it's an honor to share. It's an honor to read your letters, try to comment on them, Please share. Please continue to write at chassidusapplied.com. We're here every Sunday evening, 8 to 9 p.m. It's archived. You can then download it in podcast, on iTunes, and all the different platforms. Everyone be blessed and have a week of shalhevis elameh of empowerment, of rising, and showing what, we've, what we have owned and what we can accomplish through our own effort. Based on the keiches, that was given to us and continues to be given to us. Everyone be well. Thank you.